0: Welcome to The CAP, the College Admissions Process Podcast. I am your host, John Durante, and I am here to introduce you to college admissions representatives and other professionals in the field of college admissions. Our purpose is to serve you, the students, and parents so that you may gain insight straight from the people who ultimately make the decisions. Regardless of whether you apply to a particular school being highlighted in a given episode, you should listen to all of them as each guest will give you tremendous insight and advice on every aspect of the college admissions process, prompting you to come up with your own follow-up questions for when you visit campus or meet with a college admissions representative yourself. Don't forget to visit our website, www.collegeadmissionstalk.com, or the show notes of each episode to access the alphabetical list of all the colleges available with the related audio link to the right of each school. The alphabetical list provides you with on-demand access to all of the episodes so that you may listen whenever you wish. And if you want to receive links to episodes before they are released on the podcast, along with other related resources, please fill out the email opt-in form also available on our website and in the show notes of each episode. Lastly, please email me with any questions or comments at at gmail.com. So are you Ready? Let's talk about it. Welcome to The Cap, the College Admissions Process Podcast. I am your host, John Durante, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you today Rick Clark, who's the Assistant Vice Provost and Executive Director of Undergraduate Admission at Georgia Tech. Now, we did an episode with Georgia Tech back at episode number 38 with Rick's colleague, Samantha Rose Sinclair. But today, we're gonna to talk about the truth about college admission, which is gonna be the podcast topic. And of course, it's also the title of a book that Rick wrote. So Rick, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor and pleasure to have you. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, John. Appreciate you having me on and uh, looking forward to the conversation today.
0: Well, this is gonna be great because again, we're gonna be talking about the truth about college admission, so no holds barred here today. So <laughs> let's get right to it here today, Rick. First, let's start by asking you to just give us a brief description about yourself. How long have you been in admissions and how did you end up in such a position?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I went to school in North Carolina uh, at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And from there, ended up in boarding admissions, actually. So I was at a, a secondary school. So I've been on the high school side and uh, in an independent school um, and then kind of Moved from that into higher ed, which I've been in now for well over 20 years. I was at Wake Forest University, uh, Georgia State University, right down the road here from Georgia Tech. And now 19 years at Georgia Tech in five different roles, I guess. Uh, And so, yeah, it's um, this place has been. Four different schools in the nineteen years I've been here, uh, always changing lots going on you know in enrollment and outside of it so uh, it's been a good ride um, and yeah again you know I appreciate kind of having touched a little bit of everything in enrollment um, I worked with athletics I worked with all of our marketing and communication stuff I've worked with our dual enrollment programs, and so now getting to kind of oversee the whole thing and kind of cast vision towards. Uh, you know, meeting our mission and where we're trying to go.
0: Well, that's terrific. 19 years at Georgia Tech. They're obviously, Rick, very lucky to have you, as are we today. So let me ask you, Rick, because I did pick up a copy of your book. I did read it. And in the book, The Truth About College Admission, you talk about finding the right school and the importance of staying together as a family throughout the admissions process. Visiting college campuses will certainly help students and their families narrow down their list of schools to apply to, and you provided some great questions to ask during the college visits in your book. So Rick, can you share what are some questions students and their parents should be asking, and what else should they do or consider to help them determine if a particular school is in fact the right fit, not only for the student, but for them as a family?
1: Yeah. No, I mean, and the reason that we chose that subtitle of you know, this idea of a family guide um to getting in and staying together. And and as you said, you know, you've you've been through this process with your own family. And, you know, when you do it right, it has an opportunity to really be unifying <laughs> uh, to like cement in many ways sort of the next chapter of a relationship. Of course, I'm sure you have on your side and I have on my side. I'd see it go really wrong too. Uh there can definitely be some <laughs> definitely be some wedges in there. So Um, you know, family at the end of the day is really at the center of this. And a lot of that comes down to listening to each other, to respecting each other's opinions, to understanding what the other ones care about. And, you know, back to your idea of asking questions. I mean, I think before a student really gets going towards asking questions about where, uh, it's more about, you know, big questions like, what do I, you know, what do I really want in a college? And what are the types of places where I might thrive? You know, what are the things about my high school that I have enjoyed and want to replicate? What are those things about my high school that I'm kind of ready to build on and and move towards? Um, In the book, we talk a lot about a question that almost no students really ask, uh, which is, why do I even want to go to college? You know, a lot of these kids are super (laughs) talented, and they come from families that care a lot about education. And so it's this foregone conclusion, right? But they don't really kind of pause a second and just think about like, why do I even want to go? And I think if they'll do that, it leads to better conversations and questions. Um, In the book, we talk about a couple different things. I mean, I I do think a fundamental question that most students should ask is, why do I care? Do I care at all about the stuff they're talking about? Because when you go on these campuses, they're all going to be talking about certain things, right? Um, How many benches we have, or the fact that we've got the best (laughs) food, or we're the greenest, or whatever. Um, and I think it's good for a student to be like, what do I really care about? And so when they start talking, you can filter that through this idea of like, do I care? What are the things that matter to me um, for that match? But the other thing that we we hit on a lot is like asking questions beyond the the normal question. You know, we admission people throw out a lot of statistics. You know, we'll talk about faculty student ratios, um, and those kind of mean nothing for most students. I think the better question is. Well, what is my, what is my experience going to look like? So like in my major, how many students are typically, you know, what's that faculty-student ratio? What does that look like in my freshman year? What's that going to look like in my senior year? Um, you know, retention rates. We'll throw these percentages out, but what does that really mean? And I think a better question is, well, why do students leave? And really, why do students stay? Instead of somebody saying, well, our retention rate is 92%. Eh, I mean, it's kind of just a number. Like, what's the question beyond the question? What's the question beyond the numbers that we admission people throw out there a lot?
0: Well, Rick, those are great examples of the big questions to ask, which, of course, will help students and their families determine if the school is the right fit for them. So we really appreciate that. And of course, Rick, the application, it's a marketing package where hopefully each part is building upon the next while providing the best possible story about the student who of course is applying. So what can you tell us about what colleges are looking for in terms of the work students took part in academically and outside of the classroom?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, first of all, inside the classroom and you know, what students have done there. I mean, this is really where we start is asking, you know, first of all, where does this student go to high school? I mean, that really is question number one. That is where schools start. Um, the, way, the way we read is not alphabetically. It's not based on when you turned in your application. You know, we're going to say, all right, let's read all the students who applied from this particular high school at the same time. And the reason that's helpful is it's efficient, right? You can, you can say, I'm going to read this school that's in Oklahoma or California, wherever it might be, I understand their curriculum, what their grading scale is. I can see what their grade distributions are, how many students are in the school. Because at the end of the day, this concept of holistic admission, which we talk a lot about, is really all about context. Where's this kid in school? What does their life sort of look like? What did they have the opportunity to do? And how have they done with those opportunities? So inside the classroom, that means, you know, all right, let's say you're on an AP curriculum. What classes have you chosen to take? Uh, We look at what you could have taken versus what you do take. We also look at your trends, how you've been doing progressively over time, right? Um, And a big part of what schools want is to see that students have, you know, pushed and stretched themselves, that they're going to be ready for the academic uh, environment at whatever school it is. So at Georgia Tech in particular, I mean, you know, we're a fairly rigorous institution. We want to see students that have you know chosen to push and stretch themselves because we know when they get here that's not going to be an option anymore. They're going to be pushed and stretched. And I think largely that's how most college admission people are thinking. Outside the classroom, similarly, you know, we're trying to get a sense of, all right, look, as as humans, we all just have a certain amount of time every day. What are you doing with your discretionary time? You're a high school kid, you're going to class, you're sleeping, you're eating, you've got Four hours of discretionary time a day, whatever it might be, what you choose to do is a big indicator of what you value. And frankly, it's a big indicator of what you'll probably bring to our campus. And so we're looking to see have you had an impact on people around you? Have you had an influence on people around you? Um, Because what our data shows, and this is true of most schools around the country, the most predictive pieces of student performance and college are academic performance in high school and the fact that they've been doing things outside the classroom because it means that they can handle time management. It means that they are generally more happy and fulfilled and satisfied because they have a network and connections beyond the classroom. And all of that plays into student success, which frankly, at the end of the day, like people like me, that's how we're evaluated is how are they doing academically and are they having uh, you know good impact on, on the other students around them in college?
0: Well, I appreciate that in terms of academics. Of course, you're looking at trends. What could you have taken in your high school students? What did you take? And of course, what did you do outside of the classroom after school to help people like Rick determine the kind of citizen you're going to be at their campus, what impact you're going to have, how you're going to contribute or not? So again, Rick, we appreciate that. And in the opening paragraph of your book, you share a story about a family who tried to appeal their daughter's rejection to Georgia Tech specifically. Yeah, This was a student described as having excellent grades, impressive involvement outside the classroom, along with solid essays and letters of recommendation. In fact, Rick, you mentioned that you could have even made the case as to why the student could have been admitted to Georgia Tech while mentioning that some students who were accepted actually had lower grades. Right Now, I believe this story is important because you also talked about institutional goals and it sheds light on the fact that it's not just numbers that are taken into consideration in the overall admissions process, as there are again, institutional needs based on geographic region, academics, background, uh, and many other possible factors. So Rick, can you explain how institutional needs come into play in the overall admissions process And what are some examples of variables that may cause them to shift from year to year?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people talk about how college admission is tough to understand. It's sort of a black box and it's mysterious. And that's what causes a lot of the stress that students feel. But, you know, really, I think that college admission comes down to two fundamental principles. Number one is simply supply and demand. How many kids are applying for how many spots? You know, when I when I came to Georgia Tech, and like I said, I've been here for a while. But we're admitting about sixty five percent of students who applied. You know, based on the number of apps and the number of seats, that's what the what the model called for. Uh, This last year, apps have gone up significantly. We have grown our underground population, but not to the level of demand. And the admit rate last year was seventeen percent. And so that is just purely about the numbers, right? Um, But what drives a lot of the decisions, to your point, are who are you as an institution? What are you trying to achieve, and what's your mission? And no matter where your listeners are coming in from, you know, whether that be uh, up in the Middle Atlantic or in the Northwest or wherever they might live, they can probably think of three or four colleges, and when they really think about it, like they understand that place, is, it exists for a reason. They're trying to create something in particular. They are different. They may not look different on their websites or on the stuff that they mail out to kids. They all kind of look the same with the marketing material, but the truth is that their goals and their mission's very different, not just in the number of students they're enrolling, you know, but I think about here in our state, uh, with Georgia Tech, I mean, we're a STEM heavy institution. We have 36 majors, we're not comprehensive, we're not the flagship, we're not all things to all people, right? And the type of students that uh, may be a good fit for us, you know, may not be a great fit for another school um, here in our state and vice versa. So, You know, thinking about how would an institutional priority impact your admission decision? Um, One of the best examples is actually my alma mater, which is UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, You know, there in North Carolina, they are legislated to only enroll 18 percent of students from outside the state of North Carolina. And what that means is that you can be the valedictorian. You can have eight apps in the app store. You can like walk every old lady in your town across the street be the best person anybody's ever met. Right. Um, And not get into Chapel Hill, not because you're not amazing, not because you don't have tons of potential, but because they have a very small slice of their pie geographically that makes it three to four times more competitive to get into Chapel Hill from out of state than in state. Right. So on paper, if it was all about numbers, first of all, it would go a lot quicker. (laughs) Um, But you know, they would, they would be in real trouble with their legislator, right? They need to make sure that they are enrolling appropriately. Um, that's one example. The other big example is academic major and academic emphasis. So, you know, to your point, how could something change from one year to another? I can think at a Georgia Tech example where one year we did not have a neuroscience major, the next year we did, right? We added a neuroscience major. And therefore, a kid who prior, was uh, kind of interested in that kind of thing and, and talking about that. Well, you know, maybe they didn't really fit or match with us as well. Well, the next year we've got faculty hired, we've got labs created, we've got a big monetary investment and we need students for that program. Right. And so that is an institutional priority. Uh, so an older, an older sibling, you know, a younger sibling might have a better or less of Uh, a chance of getting into a certain college, not because of who they are or what they took, but because of what that school is trying to achieve in that particular year, right? And to your point, that does shift and change sometimes even year to year, um, but certainly within a few years, no question.
0: Hey, podcast friends, are you or someone you know in need of some custom college gear? Prep Sportswear carries a wide variety of college fan gear and apparel, including t-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, hats, and so much more. So whether you're getting ready to go to the game, hanging out on campus, organizing a college bed decorating party, or you're simply looking to build upon your college gear, Prep Sportswear has you covered. Check out our Prep Sportswear affiliate partnership link in the show notes for all the details. As an affiliate partner with Prep Sportswear, the podcast does receive a small commission if you make a purchase. But rest assured that we would only promote products that we believe in and feel that would benefit our listeners. And now, back to the show. Well, we really appreciate that, Rick, and thank you so much for spelling out the different institutional priorities because a lot of times when a student is rejected, you know, they take it personal when the reality is, like you said, Georgia Tech accepted 17% of the applicants. And I'm willing to bet that the first 20%, if you will, that were rejected, their middle 50%, if we're only going to look at academic scores, probably not that different than the 17% that were admitted. Would you say that that's somewhat true? Oh, absolutely. I mean,
1: I, I will tell our board here and, you know, academic deans all the time, I mean, if we had room, we could easily admit 80, maybe 90 percent of our applicants if it was just about doing well academically, you know, and that's why right. schools right. have holistic review. Right. It's um, it is more than the numbers. And, and to your point, like I have a friend that always says the way that admission decisions are made is very different than the way admission decisions feel to students when they receive them.
0: You know, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And so, Rick, with the increase in schools going test optional and the ease with which to apply to multiple schools, thanks to the Common App and things like the Coalition App, schools are receiving far more applications than ever before. As admissions professionals, how do you determine the number of applicants to accept, waitlist, and even deny when you receive, like you said, far more applications from deserving candidates than seats available? A lot of
1: that is based on what we call predictive models, right? And so we look at history to determine, all right, let's start with this. Every school around the country has a bowl, all right? So imagine every school's got a different bowl. The bowl size varies. So if you are Rutgers University, your bowl size is pretty big, right? You're enrolling a bunch of kids. If you're Princeton University down the street from Rutgers, your bowl size is a lot smaller, but everybody has a goal to fill that bowl, right? And what they do is they look and say, all right, how many applicants do we receive? And in the past, how many people have said yes to our offer? So if Rutgers and Princeton both got the same number of applications, um, but their their goal to begin with, you know, Princeton's is lower than Rutgers, well, that's already going to dictate your admit rate. And that's even driven a little bit down the road by how many say yes. Um, and so to give you an example of that. You know, here at Georgia Tech, uh, our yield rate for students from inside our state is 65 to 67%, meaning two out of every three say yes to your offer. So basically, what you do is you look at how many apps that you receive, you look at what your end goal is, and then you basically go from there to say, well, then our admit rate needs to be X, knowing we'll yield at Y, and that's going to bring about the percentage. Uh, or the raw number of students that we need to to make our class. Now, that said, <laughs> nothing like a pandemic to screw up a historical predictive model, right? <laughs> so, you know, one thing I would say is, I mean, you know, it's it's been challenging these last couple of years because the, the yield has really been uh, pretty messed up. I mean, um, it's been variable. And I think a lot of schools are still adjusting to figure out their new yield models. What that's led to, unfortunately, I think for students is more kids getting waitlisted because uh, schools are having to, they don't want to overfill their bowl, right? Um, Because then that causes problems for housing, problems for getting classes and this and that. At the same time, they don't want to go under their bowl size because that's going to be a revenue loss and this kind of thing. So they need to like ease up, right? Thinking about pouring milk in there and getting your cereal at the top of the bowl kind of thing. So they need to like add, add, add slowly so that they can hit their target. Um, and unfortunately, that means, and you've probably seen this on your side of the desk, that more kids are getting offers later in the summer sometimes because weightless right, activity is happening. 2020 was a complete mess. 2021 a little better. I mean, maybe we're leveling back out, but um, Because of these equations and formulas and the fact that, you know, things got really disrupted with the pandemic, it has messed with that whole uh, model a good bit.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, I'm having this conversation because I want to emphasize to students and parents that it's honestly not only about numbers. You know, you could have some solid test scores and there's no guarantee that you're going to necessarily be admitted, particularly to the uh, more competitive schools like Georgia Tech and the many that we have obviously throughout the country. Yeah. So Rick, let me ask you, what can you tell us about standardized testing and where do you think the test optional movement will be in the next five years?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's funny, man, because, (laughs) you know, before the pandemic, I was like, yeah, if more if more schools went test optional, it okay. would it would get us talking a lot less about testing. But the reverse has actually ended up being true. Like, <laughs> you know, I think there's like maybe like eighteen hundred schools in the country now that are test optional, and that's about double what it was before the pandemic. So it has been an inflection point, to say the least. Um, I would say that on the whole, I don't see testing ever coming back the way it was prior. Uh, meaning I think a lot of schools are going to stay test optional. I mean, everyone's pretty much read articles or heard people talk about this demographic cliff, right? Uh, high school grads in the country are going to be going down in the years ahead, not up. That means less kids theoretically, you know, going to college um, and schools are needing to do what they can to ensure um, that student, that's, you know students are going to continue to apply to their schools and can matriculate to their schools. At the same time, a lot of schools right now are doing um, three year pilots or, you know, they're trying to look. And this is smart, I think, because what they're saying is let's enroll some classes with a sizable number of students who are test optional and let's see how they do. I mean, ultimately, that's what it's all about is how the students do on your campus. And back to our conversation from earlier, they're not all the same. You know, one school might determine tests really are predictive of success at their campus for one reason or another. But you usually need a couple of years to really figure that out. Let's let them get here. Let's see how they do their first year. And then let's maybe look at their four-year graduation rate. So I think these schools that have taken the approach of three-year pilots, five-year pilots, like that's all based in data. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I believe that we're going to see most schools maintain that because I think the data will show that uh, a holistic process in particular um, can be well done in a way that, uh you know, ensure students do well when they when they arrive on campus. But then you've got your Purdue's, uh, MIT's, I mean, Florida system, even here in Georgia, uh, where, you know, either boards or legislators have decided that, you know, test scores are going to be required. And that will certainly come back in part, but I don't ever see it going back the way it was prior to the pandemic. I think that students benefit in some ways by at least taking the test, having the test. Um, it's also a way that schools recruit right um schools buy names from testing agencies it's a way to get on the radar of schools so there's still some value there but i don't think for the admission process it'll be as critical as it was you know pre-2020
0: i happen to agree with you and the representatives that i speak to from around the country that have recently gone test optional they're saying just that that they're going to basically conduct their studies for the next three, four, five years to determine if things like graduation rates change and are less than what it was before the test optional movement. So I happen to agree with you. And, you know, it's gonna be very exciting to see how the uh, college process uh, moves on in the next five years and beyond. So oh, going yeah, back I mean, to the, applic- yeah. go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: Well, I was just gonna say, I mean, another big thing right now coming, I think is AI, right? I mean, Yes. You know, yes. with everything with AI, I mean, will, will schools still require essays in the years ahead? Um, do they need to look for other ways to demonstrate a kid's ability to either write or, um, you know, put themselves out there? I mean, I think, I think we're going to see some really radical change in the next couple of years and, and hopefully, and I do believe most of that is, is really to the advantage of the student, not so much like getting into certain schools, but more comfortable, easier to, to apply.
0: Well, I think that's a great point, Rick. And ironically, just today, a colleague shared a news clip and an article regarding AI and how there's a program where you can basically ask the computer to write an essay for you. And it does a pretty good job, you know, uh, doing that. So you're absolutely right. Who knows if the future of college admissions, you know, rather than it being an essay. Maybe it's going to be an interview. <laughs> I don't know. Right, but sure. it's certainly going to, going to shift you know, with the uh, improvements of uh, technology. So thank you so much for sharing that. And getting back to the actual application itself, Rick, when reviewing applications from various high schools, how do you take into account when one student's school offers close to 20 AP courses, for example, while someone else's might offer only five? How do you differentiate those applications?
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, thinking here, I mean, Georgia Tech's located in Atlanta and five miles from here, if you go different directions, I can think about a school that offers 20 and a school that offers five, just like you said. Um, So we see that all the time. And, you know, I think this goes back to our conversation from earlier. The idea is context, right? I mean, we're not going to penalize a student from where, for where they live and, and where they um, go to school. And, and similarly, we're not necessarily going to reward them just because they happen to grow up in a certain zip code or go to a certain school. The bigger question is, look, you know, what did you do with the opportunities you were given? Um, what did you have access to? Don't worry about the school down the street. Um, what can you do at your high school? What do you do there? And on the college side, what we say is a couple things. One, um, we look at that almost like a character tree, right? Here's a kid who is pushing and stretching themselves within the context that they have available to them. This is why a school's never going to say, "You must have 12 APs or something." That means they would never enroll students from certain, certain high schools. The other thing, back to our, uh, just our last conversation there about data, we have more data available to us than ever before. And so one of the things that we are able to do is look at students from that high school that we've enrolled in the past and say, all right, here's a kid who goes to that high school that, quote unquote, only has five APs. Uh, They took three or four. Well, maybe we've enrolled a kid in the years prior, a couple of students from the years prior who came to our campus. Well, how are they doing? Right. Um, And so this is the kind of thing that really wasn't available, at least not in an easy way to admission officers uh, five years ago. Um, We tried to like duct tape it together and make it work, but it really was very clunky. (laughs) But now with Slate and some of the other CRMs that schools are using on the college side, you can see that and we can back map and sort of reverse engineer a little bit. Right. So um, that's super helpful. And that's definitely going to continue. And and I would say increase in the years ahead is um, that universities will be looking at historical data and then student performance on their campus. To to figure that out. Um, obviously you're always gonna get some schools you've never gotten an applicant from or, you know, that kind of thing. But in large part, um, it will be a big part of the admission process and gives you a lot of um, you know, reassurance, I guess, when you're making admission decisions.
0: Yes. And I guess that a student who applies for the first time from a high school that you haven't seen before, obviously you're going to look at their school profile just to get a sense of what they offer. And of course, like you said, with the use of technology, you could look at the trends, the historical context in terms of if a student is applying from ABC high school and there were 20 kids that applied the year before and 20 the year prior to that, now you have a historic trend that you could look and make comparisons to, I guess, help inform your decision. Is that how it works, Rick?
1: That's exactly right.
0: Okay. Well, I appreciate that. And switching gears just a little bit, Rick, the United States Department of Education requires that each of the colleges and universities make available something called the net price calculator. Yet, I'm surprised about how many people are now familiar with the net price calculator and how it actually works. So Rick, can you explain where does one find a net price calculator for each of the schools? How does it work? And how accurate is it to help families determine what their yearly college costs will actually be?
1: Yep. So the net price calculator, this is something that uh, under the Obama administration um, was put in as a requirement. All schools needed to create something that would help use, here again, uh, historical data, right? So each uh, college has this on their site. Uh, Honestly, in many ways, the easiest thing to do, of course, you can always go to like, just the net price calculator URL, right? The, the, the one that aggregates everybody's. But you can also just Google for the one that you're looking for. Net price calculator and Georgia Tech. It'll take you right to it. Net price calculator and you name the school. Um, and that might be the easiest thing because people don't care about all the other schools. They just care about the five or seven or whatever it is they're looking at. Um, so that, I would say that's a good place to start. What it does is, look, every school has what they would call a um, COA, which is a cost of attendance. And this is uh, not just tuition, but books and fees and room and board and all the kind of big macro cost of a student going there. Um, What a net price calculator does, and it it is all about the quality of information that a family puts in. So it's like anything with data, right? Trash in, trash out, take some time and put good tax information in there. You're going to get some pretty good results. Uh, But if you'll spend some some good time on these net price calculators and you put in um information from your prior tax records about um assets about income about um you know some of your some of your just general um financial information it it looks at historically for a quote student like you coming from a family like yours how much aid has been awarded? And so then ultimately, what is the net price? So it deducts, essentially, that COA, um, and then from that it deducts what would be your expected family contribution, or there's a kind of a new name for this, which is an SAI,'s kind of all the federal government terms here. but what you could expect to receive in terms of aid from that school. And that brings you down to your net price, what you could expect to pay. Uh, Or at least, you know, with some caveats, like a range of what you could expect to pay. This is a great tool. And I mean, I'm sure you would tell families the same thing. But, you know, for for a family that might be listening, you know, that are a junior in high school, one of the best things parents can do is have just really honest conversations with their kids about money. You know, how much how much can we pay? How much are we willing to pay Um, What are our limitations? You know, we talk about this in the book. Like, what are some of our conditions? Like, I know people here in Georgia who have said, listen, we'll pay for any school, any school you want to go to, um, whatever it would be for you to go to a Georgia public plus 10,000. And that's our limit. Right. And I think if if families will sit down and and say just up front, like what they can do, what they're willing to do and explain why. Um, students I think are very receptive to that. And we sometimes I think short sell our kids for what they can handle. It also is extremely helpful. Then when you go out to these schools and they tell you about how much they cost and you put your money or you put your information in that price calculator, it doesn't mean you're telling your son or daughter don't apply to that place. What you're saying is if this is accurate and and the ultimate cost for us to come back is above what we've said is our ceiling. It's just not going to be affordable for us. And I I do think talking about money honestly and early is really one of the best gifts that families can give their kids uh, in the college admission experience.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And I truly agree, especially having gone through it myself with two daughters. And Rick, I'm going to put the net price calculator for Georgia Tech in the show notes just as a reminder to parents if there are any other links that you want me to share with students and their parents just email it to me and of course i'll make it available to them and of course the common app asks the same questions regardless of which school you're applying to while providing the opportunity to have your transcript essays letters of recommendations uploaded by your teacher or school counselor it really has helped obviously to streamline the application process And Rick, many colleges, however, they add a supplemental question to gain more insight into their applicants as part of their overall process. What are schools that ask for supplemental essays trying to learn from potential students' responses that are not available in the general essay and other parts of the application?
1: Yep. Well, I mean, you know, with with the larger essay, right, the main essay from the Common App, I mean, I think in that you're getting a sense of, all right, this student's writing ability, uh, maybe something that they're kind of interested in in general, uh, maybe a bit of a sense of their voice with supplementals. Yeah, sure. You get that also. But because of what we discussed earlier, this idea that through the Common App Coalition app, it is easy to apply to a lot of different schools. Um, when you get to the supplementals, it's an opportunity for a school to sort of lean into what they care about. Back to this idea of institutional priorities. Supplementals tell a lot about what a school values. I actually think for students, they should look at those closely because when you talk about, you know, whether this is a good fit or match for me, those supplementals, if they resonate with you, um, You know, that's going to matter a lot because they have decided like they really want to know what you have to say about this particular prompt or this particular question. Um, It also is a way for students, you know, I, I hesitate to use this term a little bit of demonstrated interest. But in other words, they're basically saying, listen, thank you for applying, but we know that you could have sent this larger common app to everybody. For us, we want you to go one step further, right we want you to give us a little bit more and and so some schools you know use demonstrate interest where they want kids to apply or if a, if a rep comes to your high school they want you to uh, you know visit with them or whatever but I think for largely uh, on the supplementals this isn't this is a way for everybody applying to sort of demonstrate their interest or demonstrate what they know about that school like Georgia Texas tell us a little bit about. Why you want to study this particular major at Georgia Tech? Well, that takes you doing your homework. That takes you doing your research and figuring out. I'm not just applying there because I've heard of it or my dad went there or you know, I like the colors or something. You know, more so it's like, I've really looked into this (laughs) and I I really want to go here and you know, here's why.
0: Well, that's a great answer. The importance of demonstrating what you know. We always talk about demonstrated interest, but I think. Perhaps even more important, and it comes out in the supplemental, your demonstrated understanding, for example, of Georgia Tech, showing the admissions people that you want to be in Georgia Tech for this specific program, for this specific reason. And I think that that's what makes the supplemental essay stand out from other parts of the essay. So we appreciate that, Rick. Thank you so much. And I know we talked earlier about students that are accepted, that are deferred, and even denied. But if a student is deferred, and they are still very much interested in the school. And this is a question that comes up a lot. Again, Mm -hmm. if a student is deferred, what are the specific actions they should be taking when they're deferred?
1: Yeah. Well, we kind of joke a lot about the idea that it's too bad that deferred and denied both start with DE, right? Because they're, (laughs) they're very different. They're very different. I mean, to your point, like a deferral is not a denial. I mean, Somebody didn't make a mistake and accidentally defer you. If they wanted to deny you or they thought you should be denied, they would have done that. Um, a deferral is a, is a tell us more. You know, a deferral is a, a maybe, it's a hold on. And that's hard. You know, I get that. I mean, as humans, we, uh, we want answers and we want to know what's going to happen. And it's hard to wait. Nobody loves waiting. Um, but each school defers students because... Sometimes they just feel like they really want to see more. What were your senior year grades? I mean, we're basing admission decisions sometimes, especially coming out of COVID. I mean, on a disru- for this senior class right now, a very disrupted first year in high school and then two years with a COVID tail. That's, that's tough, right? So deferring a student sometimes uh, is about saying, listen, you're in your senior year. These classes are pretty tough. You've got a lot going on outside the classroom. How are you doing in those classes? We just want to see that full semester. So look, send in your uh, senior grades. We want to see that full, that full transcript of the, of the fall semester. Um, every school does it a little bit differently, but largely they will also say, all right, tell us more about what you've done since you applied because a lot of students are applying in October uh, in particular, a lot of times gone by. Maybe you're the, maybe you got elected captain of the swim team or you were the lead in the play or who knows what got promoted at work. We want to know that. Um, But here's the thing that students need to know is every school, if a school defers you, they are going to be very specific about what they do and do not want. It's not uniform across all schools, but they will tell you very specifically. If they say, if they don't ask for something, you don't need to send it. You know, like some schools are saying, hey, we want you to do an interview. If another school doesn't mention that and they just put a checklist on these are the three things you need to do and interviews isn't one of them. Well, interviews isn't one of them, you know. Uh, And so I think that's the I think that's the big thing. So um, whatever it is, like another friend of mine always says, like, uh, you know, read your email and do what it says. That is that is what you need to right. do as a high school student, as a college <laughs> applicant, right?
0: <laughs> well, that's a great answer. I really appreciate it. And Rick, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Again, the name of your book, The Truth About College Admission. It's not only the name of your book, but also what we talked about here. And thank you so much for your honesty and your openness. I know that this is going to help a lot of students and their parents. And unfortunately, Rick, it leads us to the last question, which is, what are your top three pieces of advice that you would offer students and their parents getting ready for the college admissions process?
1: All right. Well, I guess for parents first, um, you know, my biggest thing for parents is uh, parents of high school students should talk to fewer parents of other high school students about college admission <laughs> and, uh, and more parents of current college students, right? Because uh, parents of current college students, I mean, they're a chapter ahead. They just like when your kids were little. You always talk to somebody a little bit older, a little bit chapter ahead for advice, and that's the best thing to do. Because parents of other high school students are just as stressed. They're concerned. They have just enough information to be slightly wrong, uh, you know. And it can it can <laughs> ramp up that consternation. Um, I think for for um, back to you know something we discussed earlier for students. I think the big thing is really being willing to. Ask yourself those big questions. Um, You know, what do I care about? Who are the people that bring out my best? And being comfortable with taking the advice and insight of other people, but never like losing the, the ability to hear what you really want, what you're really interested in. I mean, that can be super challenging. But I think if you start out by saying, this is about me, my goals, my dreams, my hopes, and you maintain that and be really honest with yourself, you know, it's kind of like you go on a college tour and you're five minutes into it and you just know it's not for you, you're right, like trust your gut, you know? And I think that that is um, super valuable. And then I think the last thing, so those are two. My last thing, and this would be for parents and students both, but, you know, control what you can control. Um, you, You know, you're not gonna be able to control exactly where you get in or how much money they give you. That is true. But you do control where you apply uh, and you should never apply to a place you wouldn't actually go. I'm always amazed at how many kids add schools to their list. They have no intention of ever going just, I guess, to get in. It makes no sense to me. Don't do that. Um, But you control where you apply and you need to apply to a group of schools that you're really excited about um, that have a range of admit rates, but have a lot of the same things in common with each other where you would be really thrilled to get in and go. Um, and then also you control, you know, how you show up there. Like I teach, uh, first year students at Georgia tech, we employ first year students here at Georgia tech and man, the attitude they have when they come on campus to be excited about being here, whether it was their first choice or their third choice makes all the difference in taking advantage of the opportunities that are here. And, and you control that, right? We each control how we sort of show up and, and what we take advantage of. So don't worry about the pieces that you'll never be in those committee rooms. But there's pieces of this. In fact, the majority of this you do control, which is really your approach and your attitude.
0: Well, we really appreciate that. Again, emphasizing don't be bashful to ask the big question. You do have a lot of control in this process. Certainly take the advice of others. But at the end of the day, the decision has to be your own. Rick, I can't thank you enough. This was a phenomenal conversation. We really appreciate giving of your time and your expertise today. Wishing you luck with your book. You also have a podcast. You want to give a shout out to your podcast? What's the name of it, Rick, while we're at it?
1: Yeah, so uh, my co-author and I uh, launched a a podcast called The Truth About College Admission. Uh, So we've, we've got that out there. And then Georgia Tech is doing a monthly podcast as well called The College Admission Brief. Uh, which is more specifically about Georgia Tech, and so uh, we'd love to have people listen to to either or both of those, depending on you know what they might be interested in. But uh, but yeah, John, thanks so much for having me on today.
0: It's my honor, and I mentioned earlier the show notes. I'll link all of that into the show notes. So again, Rick, thank you so much, and I hope to have you again soon. Take care. All right, thank you. What's up, podcast friends? I'm happy to announce that we've teamed up with some fantastic affiliate partners to further enhance your overall college journey. So do you or someone you know need stylish dorm decor, trendy college apparel, or top-notch test prep? Whether it's creating a cozy home away from home, flaunting the latest in college apparel, or securing top-notch test prep help, we've got you covered. Check out our affiliate links in the show notes within each of these categories, which we believe will help you, our listeners. Please note that if you make a purchase through any of our affiliate links, the podcast does get a small commission, but rest assured that we would only promote products that we believe in and feel would benefit you, our listeners. So check out the links in the show notes and share with anyone you think may benefit. Thank you all and best wishes.